Welcome to the audio channel of Dr. Sadat. Preach Christ, teach the Bible, make disciples. Church, I'd ask the congregation to stand and please turn to Psalm chapter 3 as we will first pray and then read the Word of God. Psalm chapter 3. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. You word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Psalm chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. The NASB says... O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Please be seated. Church, I have a question. When life catches you by surprise, when you one moment find yourself in a place of comfort and security, and the next moment you find yourself discombobulated and disoriented, when you are sailing smoothly along the waters of life and then a tide of adversity comes and now you find yourself shipwrecked, paddling on a wooden log, what do you do? How do you survive the test? How do you endure the trial? How do you go from trial to trust, to triumph. This sermon is going to answer that question. And we're going to find our answer in Psalm number 3. Because in this psalm, King David shares his secret of how he found assurance in the face of adversity. It is a testimony to how he gains confidence and courage in a time of extreme strife. David draws a map for us, and in that map he walks from his trial to trust to triumph. This sermon is going to be in two parts. Today I'm going to show you, I'm going to guide you from trial to trust, and next week we're going to go from trust to triumph. So today, this morning, this sermon is going to answer one simple question. How can you endure trials? Now, if you look in your Bible, Psalm number 3 has an introduction. It says, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. 
And if we know what these introductions are referring to and know the historical context of a psalm, we're going to better understand it. So what does this introduction mean? A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. King David was a historical king of Israel. King David had a son called Absalom. Absalom had a sister called Tamar. Absalom also had a half-brother called Amnon. One day, in Amnon's head, a screw goes loose. And Amnon rapes Tamar. Absalom is obviously enraged. He's infuriated. So he goes to King David, his father, and says, Hey, do something. And the short of it is, David does nothing. So Absalom takes justice into his own hands and he executes Amnon, his half-brother. So Absalom, being the king's son, he gets rich people justice. He gets son of the king justice. The penalty for murder was death, but he didn't die. He was exiled for three years. And then after three years, Absalom comes back, and he's like, he wants to have an audience with his father, the king. David says, nope. For two years, Absalom tries to get an audience with his father, but he is denied. So now he's even more enraged. So Absalom gets the idea in his head, I don't like my king, the father David. I should be king. So while David is busy handling the affairs of the kingdom, Absalom is plotting Absalom's rebellion. He's winning over the hearts and minds of the people, and he's winning over the hearts and minds of Israel's generals. And then one day, when the time is right, Absalom storms Jerusalem, the capital city, and David is caught by surprise, and he has to run for his life. He didn't even have time to put shoes on his feet. He had to run so fast. And David flees eastward over the Brook Kidron, over the Mount of Olives, into the desert. And the Bible tells us David was weeping barefoot and had his head covered. And this is the setting in which Psalm number 3 was written. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And how does Psalm 3 begin? David writes, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. So David begins his trial by making a physical assessment of his reality. He says, my adversaries have increased and many are rising up against me. David doesn't minimize his problem. He doesn't have any positive thoughts to try and override his reality. He doesn't try to decrease the significance of what's going on. He says, this is my trial, and he calls it like it is. He makes a physical observation. He takes his reality, and he embraces it head on. 
nothing more, nothing less. And he says, O oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Now the adversaries who were rising up against David, these were physical adversaries with physical weapons. They had physical swords. They had physical spears. But when you find yourself in a trial, your adversaries may not wield physical weapons. They may wield weapons of lying, of gossip, of violence, of bribes, of political and religious coercion. Because no matter who the adversaries are that you're facing, these adversaries are equal opportunity. They want to crush you. They want to destroy you, and they're going to employ whatever means are necessary to do it. So David begins his trial again by making a physical observation about his reality. What's now the next thing that David says? He says, many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. Now, this is no longer a physical assessment of reality. This is a psychological assessment based on an assumption. Let me break that down. David's adversaries tell him, they, tell, they speak of David's soul, they speak of David's relationship with God, and they tell him, there's no deliverance for you in God. God has forgotten about you. God has abandoned you. How do the adversaries know that? Did they ask God? Did they get a special word from God? Did a prophet speak to the adversaries and give them this special private revelation? That didn't happen. So they are using a psychological, they're making an assumption about God's relationship with David and David's relationship with God, and they're now leveling this attack based on a presumption, saying, David, as far as your soul goes, there's no deliverance for you from God. It's an assumption based on a lie. And we have to embrace how destructive this insult is. You could tell me you don't like how I dress, you don't like how I talk, you don't like how I look. So what? Those are just insults meant to hurt my feelings. But when you tell me there's no deliverance for me in God, that God has forgotten about me, that God has abandoned me, that's not meant to hurt your feelings. That's meant to crush your soul. That's a cosmic insult. And as Charles Spurgeon once wrote, it is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. It is a psychological... The enemy in this case is weaponizing a lie which is meant to crush you. It's meant to totally shatter your entire psyche. And if you find yourself in your trial, 
If you begin entertaining that lie and believing that God truly has forgotten about you, that you did something wrong which is now unforgivable, where no matter how much you pray or cry out to God, he won't hear you. What are the ramifications of believing that lie? Then you're believing a lie about your God that someone else is making. You're, let, you're letting someone else tell you how your God feels about you. If a child of God believes that lie, then the last person they're going to turn to is who? God. Because you've now, you've now had the thought plant in your head that God's forgotten about you. If you believe the lie, you're going to find allies in anxiety, depression, and doubt. So in this scenario, when this cosmic insult has been waged, either the adversaries are right, or David has a right to hope. So who do you believe? Who do you trust? How do you know you can trust God? How are you going to endure this trial? I'm going to leave that question hanging for just a second. Because the next word in the psalm is selah. This is not a word that's meant to be pronounced. The psalms, as you may or may not know, are meant to be recited to music. And selah is a term which is a trigger to, to musicians or singers that says pause, stop, the stanza is over. It's meant to be a pause button so you stop and reflect upon what has just been said. So the psalm says, Psalm 3 verse 1 says, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. Selah. Pause, stop, think, consider what was just said. So now we're in Salah. Now we're stopping, now we're pausing, now we're thinking, now we're considering everything that's going on. Because when you are in your trial, you have to stop, you have to think, you have to consider what exactly is transpiring. And when we take time to pause, take time to reflect, in Selah. The first thing you have to realize in times of trial, you have to realize what is at stake. When you are in your trial and your adversaries wage the lie and say there's no deliverance for you in God, God has forgotten about you. Do you know what your enemies are trying to do? Your enemies are trying to make you run away from God. Do you know why? Because the adversaries know the one person who can deliver you from your trial is God. So if you begin doubting, if you begin turning your eyes away from God and say, God has forgotten about me, guess what? The adversaries win. Because they know you by yourself, they're going to crush you. And they can get the best of you. In your trial, to move from trial to trust and triumph, you must realize what's at stake. Your trial isn't really a trial. It's war. 
where adversaries are trying to insert a, a block, insert a schism between you and your sovereign Lord. In Selah, you also have to consider your expectations because how you endure trials has a lot to do with your expectations. Now let's think about this. If you have the expectation that because you are a Christian and your life will be easy street, where you'll be a lot of material wealth, you'll always be healthy, your family members will never mock you, and then a trial happens and there's a gap between your expectations and reality, what now happens? You have a huge expectation gap and psychologically you're thrown off balance saying, hey, wait a minute, what really happened? Which is why the prosperity gospel is so dangerous. Because if you're led to believe you're supposed to be blessed and prosperous all the time and reality happens, your faith crumbles. But if you actually read God's word and look at what happened to Jesus, look at what happened to the apostles, look at what happened to the prophets, and you realize God's word says anyone who believes and follows Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now you expect reality to act like reality. You expect from time to time there will be seasons of adversity. So now when a trial strikes, there is, there is a complete and absolute lineup between your expectations and reality. As a result, there never is an expectation gap. And consider the expectation gap that King David had in this psalm. What we often may quickly forget to realize is David is now writing this word in Psalm number 3. If we go back to 2 Samuel 7, we have one of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament where David wakes up one day and says, Hey God, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a bait. God says, No, David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And from your bloodline will be a king. This is pointing forward to Jesus, who will rule upon his throne and bring his people rest. David had that promise from God in his head when this incident with Absalom was happening. On top of that, David wasn't being revolted against by the Jebusites, by the Moabites, by the Philistines, by the Middle Easternites. No. He was being revolted against by the Israelites, his own people, and the rebellion was being led by his own son. Talk about an expectation gap. That's the biggest gap I ever heard of. So imagine the thoughts running through David's mind as he's weeping and full of sorrow going east across the Brook Kidron having all the thoughts in his mind, saying, David, look at yourself. A minute ago, you were a king. Now you look pathetic. You thought you were a king. Now you're nobody. You should give up. There's no deliverance for you in God. You're worthless. 
just sit down, lay down, curse God, and die because it's all over. There's no deliverance for you in God. This trial will win, you will lose. Game over, Selah. But, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's a but? What do you mean but? I was about to go home and pack up, I was depressed, I was sad. There's a but, what is the next line in the psalm? It says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. But, like a shot out of nowhere, there was bleakness, there was darkness, there was despair, there was hopelessness. Then comes the but, which in my personal opinion is the most powerful word in this entire psalm. But, someone please tell me what just happened in Selah. We had no reason to hope, and now David is magnifying God. What just happened? Here we go. Question, how can you endure trials? Answer, it is so ridiculously simple. How can you endure trials? By faith. What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is trust in, reliance on God, who is himself trustworthy. Faith means more than believing in God. Faith means believing God, period. Faith means the God who allowed this trial to happen is the same one who will take you out. But how can you endure trials? Faith. Now we're going to make three applications. So what is faith? Number one, faith looks up. And I would write this down. What, how can you endure trials? Faith. Number one, what is faith? Faith looks up. Meaning, the object of your faith is always God. Look at what the text says. David spends the first two verses of Psalm number three looking at his enemies. He's looking out horizontally, looking at reality. He's looking at his enemies. He's looking at what's going on. Then Selah hits. What's the next thing David says? He says, but you, O Lord, are shield about me. Which means David literally takes his eyes from what he sees in front of him and looks up to God. That's what happens in Salah. David's faith animates him to take his gaze away from his natural problem and cast his eyes onto God. Psalm 121 verses 1 to 2. Psalm 121 verses 1 to 2 says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 141.8. Psalm 141.8 says, For my eyes are toward you, O God, the Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not leave me defenseless. Psalm 25.15 says, My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet 
out of the net. If you spend too much time not looking up and looking at your natural problem, you're going to get hypnotized. You're going to enter into a trance where all of a sudden your problem seems bigger than it is. Soldiers who are only five feet tall are going to become 10 feet tall. Citadels that are only 20 feet high, sooner or later, are going to reach up towards the sky. You have to break the trance. You have to break the spell and stop focusing on your natural problem and look up. Because the way you endure trials is by faith, and faith looks up. Meaning, its object is always God. And what David did in Selah, the King David, he looked up toward a greater king who can fight and grant victories. And get, look what happens. When you look up and your faith casts eyes on God, what do you see? Now you have an all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent God holding that problem in the palm of his hand. And now, with your eyes looking up on God, now that problem looks smaller and smaller and smaller compared to God himself. So now, relative to God, all of your problems seem manageable. So how can you endure trials? Faith. What is faith? Faith number one looks up. Faith number two. What is faith? Number two. Faith begins with content. It begins with God's word. It begins with God's revelation to us in the Bible. It begins with an awareness of God's promises to us. Faith begins with content. That then leads to conviction. Your intellectual, psychological persuasion that yes, what I read, the historical facts in the Bible, certainly are true. Faith begins with content, which leads to conviction. Then that leads to personal trust and reliance, where you say, yes, Lord, you are now my personal Lord and Savior. An atheist will have some content. They'll know about God, but they're not convicted that it's true. Demons have the content and the conviction. Demons really know that God is really God, but they don't have personal trust and reliance in Jesus Christ. So faith begins with content, which leads to conviction, which leads to personal trust and reliance. Now, why did I go through all that? That was very academic. That was very Reformation-like. Why did I just go through that academic definition? Because when you are in your trials, because we know that faith is based on content, if you don't have content, then you don't have faith. If you don't have knowledge of who God is, if you don't have knowledge of what God has done, if you don't have knowledge of God's promises to you, then you won't know who you're trusting in. Then you won't have any knowledge of how God can act and what God can do in your trial. Listen, if you lack the content or an awareness of who God is, do you know what my words right now are? Foolishness. 
You know what Psalm 3 is right now? Foolishness. Because there are words about someone that you don't know about, that you're not aware of, that you don't know what he's done in the biblical drama of redemption. So if you don't know, if you don't read the Bible and meditate on God's word when times are good, then that content, that word, won't do you much good when times are bad. Listen, I'm not telling you this to be judgmental, to point my finger at you and say, read your word more. No, listen, I want you in a time of trial not to stand on a foundation of wet toilet paper. I want you to stand on a foundation that is the rock of God's word. The real... The real prosperity gospel is this. When times are good, you read the word, you meditate on it, you pray, you allow your mind to be transformed from the supernatural spiritual truth found only and exclusively in the Bible. That is it. So you build a foundation that's solid. You build a foundation that is a rock. So in the good times, when you immerse and build all of that content, Now when you find yourself shipwrecked in a trial, guess what your foundation is? Content. The rock. The time to start reading the word is never in trial. It's right now. It's when you go home. It's when times are good. So good times then are not times for relaxation. It's preparation for your trial. Now maybe it's just me. But when I find myself in a trial, there's nothing I want more than a personal word from God. I want the Spirit to talk to me. I want God to come down from heaven, send an angel, and give me, Elijah Sadafel, a special message that says, this is exactly how you're going to get through your problem. You do this, you read this, you talk to this, and it's going to be okay. Because I'm special. God has to talk to me. I need a new, fresh word from God. Maybe that's just me. I'm talking for myself alone. But I have news for you. You don't need a new word from God. You know why? Because there's nothing wrong with the old word. Our faith is based on a closed book of content. Our faith is reliable because it's based on something perfect, based on something complete. God, knowing everything, gave us everything we need to know for life, from Genesis to Revelation. That's why our faith is so wonderful, because it's based on closed content. He doesn't, God doesn't need to add anything new, because it's already perfect. So in your trial... You don't need a new word from God because there's nothing wrong with the old word. Here's what the old word says. James 1, 2-4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing 
that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Philippians 1.6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, not may, not perhaps maybe, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now here's a cure for depression. Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 3. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's the old word. That's a good word. So you don't need a new word from God. Because there's nothing wrong with the old word. And because faith begins with content. In the height of our trial, our faith may falter. Because we forgot the content. We forgot all of those glorious promises that God has made to us already in his old word. So faith begins with content, and that leads to conviction and personal trust. And the reassurance is that even trials cannot keep you from the promises of God. And the way that David moves from his trial through Selah to trust in God is he strengthens himself in God's word. And he remembers and rehearses the promises God has made to deliver us out of trials in his old word. And he rehearses and reiterates those same promises to himself. And if you're in a trial right now wondering where you can start, you're asking, Pastor, what verses can I start with? The three I just mentioned. James 1, 2-4, Philippians 1, 6 and Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 3. The point is this. When you are in your trial, your trial, the things around you are unreliable. Listen, if I was in your trial and I was looking for hope in in circumstances, I would be depressed. I would be anxious because the things around you are what? They're depressing. They're unreliable. They offer no hope. That's the point. The situation is never going to give you strength. The situation has proven itself to be unreliable, which is why you need someone who transcends that situation, who is reliable, who is trustworthy, because your situation will let you down, but God won't. So that's number two. Faith has content, conviction, personal trust and reliance. How can you endure trials? Faith. What is faith? Number three. Faith is not a talent. Faith is not a talent. There are some people who can sing. You know, they have a natural gift. They take vocal lessons. They tune their voice. And they sound good. They can carry a tune, pleasing to the ear. There are some people who can sing. 
And then there are some people who can sing. Right? They are just born with pipes. It's in their DNA. When they're two or three, you give them a mic, and it just sounds so pleasing to the ear. You feel a movement inside. You just want to cry because it's beautiful. They can sing. It's a talent. It's a gift. They were born with it. They don't have to work for it at all. It just exudes out of them. No matter how hard I try, I will never be able to sing because I lack the God-given inborn talent. Faith is not a talent. Yes, faith is a gift from God. But I never want you to look at someone else and say, so-and-so has so much faith. They have so much faith. I can never be like them. That is a delusion because faith is not a talent. Faith is something which grows, which increases, which is cultivated. As the disciples said in Luke 17, 15, Lord Jesus, increase our faith. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by what? The Word of God. In other words, content. Faith comes by content. Faith comes by meditating on the Word of God. Faith comes by praying and rehearsing God's Word, particularly in the Psalms, back to Him in your personal devotional time. Every titan of faith in the history of of, uh, human history never was born or never woke up one day and was a titan of faith. They began with the mustard seeds worth of faith and throughout their entire life grew and grew and grew and grew. So faith is not a talent. Yes, faith is a gift from God, but it can be cultivated. It can be grown. And the way you grow your faith is simple. The content. The word of God. So how can you endure trials? Faith. Faith looks up. Faith has content, conviction, personal trust, and faith is not a talent. Faith also actualizes benefits. David says in Psalm number 3, verse 3, but you, O Lord, are number one, a shield about me, Number two, my glory. And number three, the one who lifts my head. In other words, David having faith in God, God now provides David defense, honor, and deliverance. So David is in the midst of his trial. He trusts in and has faith in God. God now becomes his shield when no one would come to his defense. God now becomes his glory and source of treasure when David had none. And God lifts up his head toward hope when he was surrounded by hopelessness. So God doesn't just leave you in the midst of trial, wanting you to have faith and then leaves you alone. That faith actualizes benefits. And all of these benefits are always enjoyed by faith, regardless of the predicament that you are in. Now David says, Lord, you are a shield about me. This is not the shield you're thinking about. 
The Hebrew word for shield is magen. There are two types of shields in the ancient Near East. One was a circular shield, which was light and portable. So a soldier would have it in his left hand and his sword in his right. He was meant to move and go about. This is not that type of shield. The shield David is talking about is a magen. It's a heavy, full weight, encompassing the entire human being shield. This is a shield that's not meant to move with you. It's meant to stay directly in place so a shield bearer could hold the shield. An archer could pop out, fire an arrow, and swing right back in and be protected, which tells you what? When you trust and have faith in God and he is your shield, his shield is meant to keep you exactly where you are. Because if you try to move in the heat of battle with this heavy shield, you're going to fall down and get taken out. If you try to run, it's going to slow you down. This shield has its greatest value when it stays put, firmly rooted in the ground, and you remain behind the magen, behind the shield, to quench the fiery darts of the enemies. And no matter how many adversaries David found around him, no matter how many adversaries you may find in your trial, David thought he was defenseless. But God being David's shield means if you have a thousand, if you have a million, if you have ten million people surrounding you, you plus God is always a majority. And God provided David with a shield. David also calls God my glory, from a Hebrew word kavad, meaning weight. Because David knew just being exiled from his throne room, being exiled from his city, he couldn't put his weight, he couldn't put his trust in any circumstance. He had to put it in God himself. And God's glory is greater than any human power. And God is the one who lifts David's head. This is an expression that means victory over enemies, restoration, and it signals a movement from hopelessness to despair. Because when trials and adversaries push you down into the dirt, the one who lifts up your head is God. So David begins Psalm number three in a perilous predicament. Now he has a shield about him. Now he has the glory of God. And the Lord is the one who lifts up his head. And all of these benefits are enjoyed by faith. So when you trust in and lean on God in your trial, he is the one who provides defense for the defenseless, glory to the despised, and joy for the comfortless. Now I'll close by saying this. If we make a connection now, David is a type of Christ. He's an Old Testament prefigurement of the Messiah to come. And if we make a connection now to the New Testament and to Jesus, Jesus endured a trial on Calvary 2,000 years ago when he was on the cross. And we can surely say that he was surrounded 
by a host of enemies, surrounded by a host of adversaries. When Jesus was being tortured on the cross, he had many adversaries, including legions of accusers, armies of foes, a crowd of bodily pains, a horde of spiritual arrows, and death itself. And just as Psalm 3 tells us that David left Jerusalem barefoot, weeping, and his head covered, Jesus also left Jerusalem to go to his trial, to go to his cross. Because he was barefoot as he carried his cross, he was truly full of sorrow, and his head was covered with a crown of thorns. And when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was a yearning, it it was a felt separation from the Father, which in many ways is very similar to the adversary's attack of, there's no deliverance for you in God. It's a crying out, feeling separated from God Almighty. And I preached once that when Jesus made that statement, Jesus, being God, called up to heaven and there was silence. In other words, God asked God a question and God didn't answer. But now we know better. Because God didn't answer in the present tense. Because God had already answered. Past tense. Because if we go back to Psalm number 2, what do we read? We read the Father speaking to his son, Jesus, saying, Today you are my son, I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance. Which means even Jesus on the cross could look back to what God had already said. To give him content, to give him a source of trust, to give him something to lean on during his trial. So even God could look back to what God had already said. God could look back to God's content. And if it's good enough for God, then it's good enough for me. Then it's good enough for you. It's sufficient for whatever trial you are going through. Now, when we look back to God's old word in the Bible, and we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, we know that God will never allow a trial beyond what you are capable of. And as Psalm 50:15 says, call, this is God speaking, call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you. There's a guarantee. I shall rescue you. And you will honor me. God has allowed your trial to happen, and he has the conclusion already finished. And now God wants to know, how will you respond? Will you trust in him? Will you rely on him? Will you have faith in the author and finisher of your reality? So now, church, we're in the midst of a trial. We're standing firm. We have our shield up and we're protected in the midst of battle. We've gone from trial to trust and we're secure, we're safe in the height of our trial. But we're still in the battle. The arrows of the enemy are still coming. How do we now go from trusting in God 
to triumphing, to winning, to moving from our posture of defending ourselves to finding victory in God himself. And that is the purpose of next week. We're going to go from trust to triumph. Church, God bless you. Thank you for listening to this sermon by Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable content and resources, please visit wcsk.org.